Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Friday, October 25th. And thanks, as always, for tuning in. On today's show, I'm going to be talking about British Columbia's new legislation that was introduced yesterday, which it says will make BC the first province to implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. The legislation mandates the government to bring provincial laws and policies into harmony with the aims of the declaration, but does not set a timeline for doing so. The UN Declaration grants Indigenous peoples the right to redress or compensation for traditional lands that have been taken, used, or damaged without their free, prior, and informed consent. BC's Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation Minister Scott Fraser said yesterday the the legislation is modeled on a federal bill which died on the Senate order paper when Parliament adjourned for Monday's election. He believes BC's law will bring a more positive outcome. National Chief Harry Bellegarde said in a statement that this will create a greater economic stability and prosperity because it's clear that ignoring First Nations rights is the cause of instability and uncertainty. So in the back half of today's show, I will be speaking with the Vice President of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, Chief Don Tum, and he'll be uh, talking a little bit more about what that legislation means and how he feels about that. At the end of today's show, I'll be joined by BC Green Party spokesperson Stephen Johnson to take to talk a little bit about the federal election and what it means for the Green Party here in British Columbia. The party is looking for a new leader with Andrew Weaver set to step down. Will the momentum that was seen on Monday night mean that more people may look at the Green Party as a viable option for their political aspirations? Will it help more candidates come forward for that leadership position? Uh, here in the Kamloops Thompson Caribou, Ian Curry received the most votes ever by a Green Party member in this riding and of course it gained a seat in the House of Commons winning its first ever seat outside of BC as uh, Jenica Atwin won in Fredericton, New Brunswick. So I'll be chatting more with Stephen Johnson on all of that at the end of today's show. And in about 10 minutes time, I'll be speaking with the mayor of Logan Lake on a couple of issues, including uh, an issue or not an issue necessarily with the copper mine out there, but uh, potentially some concern as third quarter profits dropped for the company, but it did say copper, copper production was up overall. But to begin today's program, we'll be talking a little bit about Halloween. Yes, Halloween is all set for Thursday, and there are many different activities that will be gone in, going on in Kamloops this weekend to get you ready for all Hallows' Eves. Of those events is the third annual Haunt for Humanity taking place at 3212 Archibald Place. Here to talk about it is one of the hauntees, Elise Nelson. Elise, thank you so much for taking the time to come in today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So the third annual Haunt for Humanity, I guess, uh, you know, you guys are opening up here this weekend. Um, so I just talk a little bit about the planning that goes into something like this. I mean, it's a, it's got to be pretty difficult to put this together. Yeah, it's usually my mother and I who, who do it all. And we pretty much do everything from planning out the design of the maze, figuring out how we're going to cover it up and everything that takes over two months to get it done. My neighbors are there. I'm sure they're getting sick of seeing it, but <laughs> they really love the fact that we do it for charity. So it should be great. Yeah. So, so when you're looking at that charitable aspect, I guess, so, uh, you know, you're, you're obviously trying to collect some money and collect some donations. So, so how do people do that? Do you like have a, a pot that you kind of put a, a dollar in when, before you walk through the maze or how does that work? Um, what we're doing this year is uh, it's a mandatory $5 for entrance into the maze. Uh, we do have a giant bin in front. It's this beautiful um, tombstone nice. grave that my brother created. Very, very artistic that he is. And uh, you can come out and we're going to have a concession and that's all free by donation. So you just pay what you feel like and you can get a hot dog, come on through 
And this year we have All Around Gamers. They're they're great, and they're going to do uh, virtual reality there. Oh, okay. Yeah, and they're going to do free tours to their games, so you can come out and check out some of the zombie games that they have, and then there's virtual haunted houses. It's gonna be fantastic. Wow, so this is a this is a pretty significant thing, and this is the third annual. So I guess uh, you know what have you learned over the course of the first two events that helped this thing get better and better? Oh, we always need more volunteers. <laughs> uh, that and yeah, um, just the the amount of time that goes into it or whatnot. Um, it takes a lot of organizing, but uh, once we get there, we're good and. Yeah, weather, weather depending, right? <laughs> For sure, yeah. I guess it, it always helps to have that nicer weather. Um, so, so when do you guys sort of kick things off? Obviously, I, I well, I shouldn't say obvious. I assume you wait till the sun goes down. So, uh, when when do people start showing up? I guess we like to keep it open for a younger crowd between five and seven p.m. So we won't have any actors in the maze during that time. Obviously, our animatronic animatronic props will be running and all that kind of stuff. So if you want to bring out your children during that time that may scare easy or whatnot, we don't recommend it for children under seven years old. But if your kid is good with scary stuff, bring them out. And we're really accommodating when it comes to that. From seven to 11, that's when we're going to have our actual actors in the maze. And that's when it's darker and uh, you're going to get pretty scared. <laughs> right on. So I'll have to make sure I come after seven then. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a big Halloween fan, and uh, we were talking earlier, you know, I, I let, used to throw big parties, and I would spend, I don't know, hundreds if not thousands of dollars on decorations, and then countless hours making other ones. Um, that's just for a party. So this is a maze. This is uh, probably even more work that needs to go into it to make sure it is, you know, scary and attractive for people for, for them to come out. Uh, just, you know, you don't need to talk about the money that was spent on it, but just like how challenging is it to get things just the way you want them and, and really how much time and effort goes into this? I, I would say that it's a 50-50 between um, monetary and, and grabbing things that you find in the stores, but a lot of what we make is we actually make it. It's mm -hmm. by hand. So you're going to see a lot of trees and odd decorations in there that you wouldn't think you're not going to find that in stores. You're just definitely not going to. And we use the wilderness for a lot of our scenes, and it makes a huge difference. It looks realistic. It looks fantastic. It's amazing. Without giving anything away, I mean, is there one particular piece that you can think of that would, uh, you know, that you were really, really proud of that you were able to sort of put all your work and, and effort into? Uh, I there are a variety of different scenes this year. We have one called the White Room. It is terrifying. I had a situation where I was just putting leaves out one night just by myself, and I swear I saw somebody else's feet in there. <laughs> it terrified me. I went running. <laughs> if it scares us, it's going to scare you. <laughs> awesome. So in terms of the volunteer aspect, right? You said you always need more volunteers. How many people do you have helping you out right now? I'd say I have about 20 to 25 people. Uh, I have about... I'd say 12 to 15 actors every night, and that's just the actor's aspect. And then um, I have about six to 10 people who run the concession. And independently this year, we also have uh, Labyrinth Farms that are going to set up a 50-50 draw, and they're also going to do a free gift basket draw for anybody who wants to put their name in, it's going to have over $75,000 or $75 worth of stuff in there from their farms. It's going right to be fantastic. On. 
That's awesome. Um, and so you have about 12 people coming out every night. I guess, when is this running? Because it starts tonight here on Friday. So uh, does it run every night through to Halloween or, or is there any nights off in there? I wish we had enough volunteers to be able to do that. But since it's all... Uh, it's all for charity and it's only for volunteer based. So we only run uh, Friday night, Saturday night, and Halloween night. Okay. So, so that's the 25th, 26th, and 31st. Limited amount of time for people to come and check it out. I guess you're expecting to, uh, to pretty much be busy the whole time through on those three nights? Oh, definitely. Last year we had lineups down the street. Uh, that's why this year we're going to try to, to block off a bit of our cul-de-sac because there's just too much... Uh, vehicle traffic and foot traffic going on. So I ask anybody who's coming out, just park on Juan Road or park at the elementary school just around the corner there. It's a lot easier and then just walk your way in. Perfect. How long does it take to walk through? Uh, it takes six to 10 minutes. <laughs> okay, so six to 10 minutes of sheer terror. Yeah, absolutely crazy. <laughs> awesome. Um, and uh, would you encourage people maybe to, to dress up themselves if they come out? Do you see a lot of that when people come check it out? We do, especially on Halloween night. We still run as um, a place to trick-or-treat, and so we have a lot of community people coming out and just doing the walkthrough there. It's amazing. Most of the west side, they, they don't like our area because there's lots of uh, houses that are really spaced. So they'll literally get in their minivans, just come to our house and then get back in their minivans and head out for the day. We really encourage that. So, Awesome. Well, this is really good stuff, Elise. I guess I'll just get you out of here on this. What is it about Halloween that gets you so excited? Do you have any idea why this particular holiday is so awesome for you? Uh, you'll never know the exhilarating feeling you get from scaring someone over and over again. It is the best high on earth. <laughs> I couldn't agree more, and I'm really excited for Halloween. It's my favorite holiday, and uh, yeah, definitely looking forward to Thursday, and I'm looking forward to coming and checking out the uh, third annual Haunt for Humanity. Uh, just one more time, where and when's it taking place? It is happening Friday, Saturday, and Halloween night at 3212 Archibald Place. That's out in Westside off of Juan Road. Perfect, and make sure you bring your $5 so you can get in. Thanks so much, Elise. I really appreciate you coming in. Thank you. Awesome. That was Elise Nelson. And by the way, all proceeds will be going to the Kamloops YMCA Battered Women and Children's Center. So definitely a good cause being supported by uh, what should be a, a really good time. Coming up after the break, the uh, we will have the mayor of Logan Lake on to talk about a few issues going on there. So stick around. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Friday, October 25th. Minor Tech Resources, the company which operates Highland Valley Copper in Logan Lake, is reporting that its third quarter profits are down, and the CEO of the company says it will be focusing now on improving efficiency and productivity after these results. Those can be some scary words for an employer or a community that relies on the company as an economic driver. I'm joined by the phone over the phone now by the mayor of Logan Lake, Robin Smith. Mayor Smith, thanks so much for joining me today. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. I'm good. doing pretty good. Good. Glad to hear it. So uh, I guess before we get too deep into this conversation, I mean, can you maybe just give me, uh, you know, a, sort of a sense of how significant the Highland Valley mine is to the community and the, the economy there in, in Logan Lake? Well, they're a pretty major contributor to our local economy, no doubt about it. Um, we, we wouldn't be here if, if uh, they weren't there um, in, the, in the beginning days, so they're a huge, uh, they're a huge co contributor with, with no question at all. 
Now, when a CEO of a company like that says it's going to be focusing on improving efficiency and productivity, I mean, those can be some scary words. So, I mean, with, with copper production actually up, though, uh, maybe that's what people in Logan Lake should be focused on. So, I mean, just can you give me a, a sense of sort of how much people pay attention to uh, these, these profit reports that are put out by a company uh, like, uh, like, you know, like the one that's operating the mine there? I mean, is that something that people are really paying close attention to to kind of ga gauge how, um, how the mine is doing? in terms of that global scale? Well, you know, you're exactly right. I think in, as part of that report, they actually mentioned that there is an increase in copper production. And what you go from that, from um, due to higher copper grades and, and uh, recoveries and things like that from the HVC operation. So um, I think that um, that to kind of bring that into perspective a little bit. Um, we always have to be concerned anytime that they're they're talking about reductions of the workforce and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I guess but you probably wouldn't find them now. Yeah, you probably wouldn't have any necessarily necessarily any word from uh, from the higher ups there. But uh, given the fact that copper production itself was up, and and it seems like the bigger concern was on the the coal side of things for the company, I yeah. guess that should be almost viewed as as good news for Logan Lake. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they have a long-term sustainability plan. It closely with them um, as a as a community to do what we can to to you know to do you know assist in maintaining that stability and that longevity. So I think that um, you know as long as we're we're working together and we've got a pretty good picture of what things look like going forward. Um, their current mine life is 2027. They do have um, um, a proposal in for extended to 2040 and beyond. So I think we can still remain optimistic. You know, there's a lot of really good um, really cool things that are that are going on out there right now and I think that we have to focus on some of the newer technologies that they're using to um, you know keep things sustainable on the long term uh, yeah 2027 doesn't feel like it's uh, that far away but uh, 2040 does feel a little bit more uh, you know distant so uh, any ideas sort of when they might be seeing approval for that uh, you know does, there, does the the community of Logan Lake have any say in sort of what's going on there well, I, I can't say for sure, for sure at this time, but I know it's definitely imminent, and I know it's creeping up fairly soon. So, um, obviously, the sooner the better for for well for every everybody here. Um, we always want to know, you know, good news as soon as we can hear it. And um, I'm, you know, we're also working on a lot of other things that. Um, that are also really important to make sure that we're not always um, dependent on the mine. Um, we, we're moving moving closer to um, approving quite a big um, cannabis production facility here in Logan Lake and allowing that in our industrial park. So I think that's a, a part of diversing, you know, diversifying our, our economy. Um, we've been doing a lot around the tourism and the trails and, and things like that. Um, I think, as you know, with our campground, we've actually... Um, been more way up in terms of um, revenue there um, as compared to 2017 we're actually double our revenue in, in the campground so we're, we're working on a lot of other things to sort of try to move away from being 
and it's on the mind as well. And I think that, you know, people should also hear that, that we're not, you know, just sitting here kind of depending on them. And um, we are actually doing a lot of other things that, that um, are, are hopefully, you know, moving away from that dependency a little bit more. And I think that's a nice transition into a couple other things I did want to just touch base on very briefly. I mean, you mentioned that when it comes to the municipal campground, profits are up uh, double what they were uh, just two years ago, I guess. So, um, and how can you kind of describe how this year's tourism season went uh, here in 2019? Obviously, uh, it sounds like you guys had a pretty, pretty uh, good season here over the course of the summer, at least when it comes to camping. You know what? It was incredible. We were, um, our, our um, revenue in the campground for this season was 180000 which way exceeded our expectations. We're up 60000 from last year and double from 2017. So um, we're, we're just on a, you know, we're just constantly doing better and better. And, and uh, you know, we know how special we are. We know that we have a lot to offer um, in terms of tourism and, uh, and the community itself in terms of, you know, we don't just say discover our nature. We really are um, working hard to make sure that people do have the opportunities out there to discover our nature because it's, it's beautiful here. And, and there's a lot of opportunities out there and we're doing everything we can to highlight all of those. Awesome stuff. Um, and you did also mention when you were talking about diversifying your economy a little bit to move off the dependence on the mine, uh, you talked a little bit about the trail system as well. Uh, I understand that you guys were trying to get 100000 I believe it was, from the Rural Dividend Fund, but that has obviously been postponed now as a result of uh, the, the forestry uh, help that was announced by the government. It's part of that money's coming from the Rural Dividend Fund. Um, so when you're looking at funding for the, the Mimi Falls Legacy Trail, um, you know w what's next for that project? Are you guys maybe just postponing it for a year or are you looking for other sources of funding well um we're hoping to move forward with that we um are celebrating our 50th um, birthday next year. So we really want to have um, that as part of our, our, our legacy. Um, we, you know, we, like I say, we say discover our nature and we want to kind of um, make sure that we're doing things along those lines that are low cost, but um, are there for far, far into the future. So we were a little disappointed to hear about the Rural Dividend Fund um, being sort of frozen, but um, we do have um, an application that's going to be going in to the um, the tech, pardon me, um, community investment fund uh, for as part of our 50th anniversary um, celebration. So hopefully some of those funds could go into that Mimi Trails um, project as well as um, the community forest um, is also a big contributor to a lot of the things that we, we do here in Logan Lake and we're hoping that some of the um, funds may come from, from the dividends from Community Forest as well. So we're looking at a few different ways to continue to see that project move forward. Good stuff, Robin. Well, I'll definitely be paying attention to see what happens there and then hopefully you guys can see some progress there for your 50th anniversary. Thanks so much for taking the time to you join too. me today. I really appreciate it and uh, have a fantastic weekend. You're more than welcome, and thanks very much for giving me the opportunity. I appreciate it. Anytime. That was Logan Lake Mayor Robin Smith. Coming up after the break, BC has tabled historic legislation that looks to implement the UNDRIP from the United Nations. So we'll talk more about that after this. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com.
Welcome back into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Friday. So yesterday, the B.C. government introduced new legislation that it says will make B.C. the first province to implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. UNDRIP defines the individual and collective rights of Indigenous peoples, which includes their ownership rights to cultural and ceremonial expression, identity, language, employment, health, education and other issues. It also emphasizes the rights of Indigenous peoples to maintain and strengthen their own institutions, cultures and traditions and to pursue their development in keeping with their own needs and aspirations. Uh, the, the goal of the declaration is to encourage countries to work alongside Indigenous peoples to solve global issues like development, multicultural democracy and uh, decentralization. Premier John Horgan said this uh, yesterday in the legislature. It's a forward-looking and collaborative document, and it will help us end discrimination and create opportunities for Indigenous peoples, families, communities, and businesses. Will it have that desired effect, which Premier John Horgan is hoping? Well, I am joined on the phone now by Chief Don Tum of the Sartlip First Nation and Vice President of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. Chief Tum, thank you so much for joining me here on the program today. Good morning. Good to be on. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. So uh, before we get into this, I just wanted to sort of get your initial react and reaction to those words from the Premier. I mean, do you think this legislation, in your mind, um, you know, is going to go far enough and, and, you know, is a step in the right direction here in terms of relationships with, uh, you know, our provincial government and Indigenous peoples? Well, I think if we look across the country, uh, B, uh, B.C. is the first government to uh, take on the recommendations from uh, uh, sorry, pardon me, uh, take on the recommendations and uh, to uh, for all governments to implement uh, the United Nations declarations uh, of Indigenous peoples uh, as a framework. And so uh, it really uh, we are uh, moving forward in a way that uh, I think many of us couldn't imagine. And uh, this is uh, history in the making. And I, I think if we, we look at our, our history uh, across Canada and from the Doctrine of Discovery, and I think we're turning the page now and uh, where uh, Indigenous peoples, First Nations communities will have the opportunity to make shared decision-making, and it will be, uh, the discussions will move to nation-to-nation -nation discussion. Yeah, that's obviously something you guys have been wanting for quite some time. I know the the the, the terminology of uh, nation to subject has been has been uh, bandied about a little bit. So this, uh, you know, sort of hopefully will help put you guys on more of an equal footing when it comes to some of those government decisions. Um, you know, does this legislation do you think go far enough? Because I know you know when you're looking at some of the things like the resource sector, it doesn't necessarily uh, grant power to stop those resource development projects. Um, so just what is your overall opinion just on on that part? I mean, does it go far enough? in order to give you that voice in terms of government decisions? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, what this comes down to is these are basic human rights, and they're basic human rights that Indigenous communities have been denied for a long time. And it is uh, moving towards an area where uh, consent must be provided. And that uh, consent, and uh, I, I think there is a myth out there that First Nations will now have veto, and that's just not true. Mm -hmm. Consent and veto are, are very different. And I, I think this sets forward a path of predictability for industry who, who want to do uh, business with First Nations or Indigenous communities. And I, I think it, you know, it, it sets forth uh, some predictability. And I, I think in my history, uh, much of uh, the unpredictability typically leads us to court cases and long court cases going to the Supreme Court of Canada. 
And I, I think, you know, if uh, our resources are going into lawyers, not only in First Nations communities, into battling court cases, but also, you know, D.C. and Canada's fees uh, uh, that go into that, I, you know, these are resources that can stay into community now. But um, it, it, uh, in, in terms of uh, resource sector and in, uh, uh, people who want to do business with First Nations people and, and Indigenous communities, it sets forward a path of, uh, that uh, brings more uh, certainty and predictability and everyone will have a, a better idea as to what should be and will be expected. Now, there is no timeline, I guess, for this legislation to continue the process of moving forward. I know it's taken quite a long time to get to this point, so uh, maybe maybe just the fact that there is no timeline isn't too big of a concern, at least not just yet. Um, but do you have any worry that, you know, there's no uh, time being put onto this in terms of how fast it can actually move through? Uh, well, I, I think, you know, just looking at the, the work that uh, uh, the NDP and the Greens have been able to do with their management and supply agreement, and this is, uh, uh, we have uh, moved substantially away from, it wasn't that long ago there was a referendum uh, that British Columbians took part in in deciding on what First Nations government should look like. Should it be like municipal? Should it be provincial? So we moved away from uh, having the general public decide as to what and who First Nations are, and we have uh, now have the United Nations Declaration of Indigenous Peoples as a framework here in B.C. Uh, that really uh, puts us on uh, a level ground where we can all make these shared decision-making together. Uh, I'm joined on the phone right now by UBCIC Vice President Chief Don Tum. I did want to ask as well, I mean, how confident are you with this legislation at this point in time? I know it was just introduced yesterday, but, uh, you know, it is being modeled on the, the federal bill, which died uh, on the Senate order prior to uh, the, the most recent federal election. I know Justin Trudeau has promised that, uh, you know, he will look at that again, uh, you know, now that he has been reelected. But uh, just, you know, do you have any... Um, uh, negative thoughts, I guess, when you see something like that that happened at the federal level, um, and, and do you have any concern that could potentially happen here at the BC level as well? Uh, we had a uh, former uh, member of Parliament, Romeo uh, uh, Sengesh, join us uh, at the legislature yesterday as well, and he was recognized at the legislature by uh, uh, the Leadership Council, and uh, we recognize that uh, the difficulty of which uh, that uh, his uh, his bill uh, passed in uh, the House but not in the Senate uh, really uh, gave us the determination to move forward and say that this must be necessary for us to continue on that fight. And uh, I, I think much of the, the hard work that he's done uh, in his bill uh, really helped us here in D.C. Uh, I'm optimistic that this, uh, this, this will change... Uh, uh, relationships between uh, in, uh, the, the Crown, uh, uh, provincial Crown, and uh, it'll change how our relationships work. And I, I, I think it's uh, a legislation that uh, is not just uh, typically sometimes we'll have legislation that's based on principles, uh, but uh, this sets forward in the legislation as to uh, how we have these discussions and how First Nations can invoke this uh, uh, legislation and and really it, it sets forward a path of uh, shared decision making it sets forward the path of some predictability for uh whether it be proponents or whether it be uh the, the crown and it uh it has real 
uh, framework uh, capabilities that uh, will change, uh, I, I think, uh, the relationship for all Indigenous people in, uh, in British Columbia, but also not just limited to Indigenous peoples. I think it will change our relationship with all British Columbians, including uh, the BC government and uh, people who want to do business with uh, Indigenous communities. And uh, do you think that seeing this step being taken here at a provincial level is just, uh, you know, maybe some some show of faith that this could potentially be something that does move ahead at the federal level? Because obviously we want to see the, the federal government sort of take the lead on these kinds of issues. But, um, you know, the fact that the provincial government is doing so, I think sends a message probably to, to the higher-ups, uh, you know, at that at the national level. Um, do you think that this almost has a trickle-up effect potentially now that this is uh, starting the process of moving forward on this UNDRIP legislation? Absolutely. And I think, you know, you're already seeing uh, comments from party leaders. Uh, Elizabeth May made a comment yesterday that uh, calling on Justin Trudeau to uh, also uh, take the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation for all governments to implement uh, the framework of uh, the United Nations Declaration of Indigenous Peoples. And I, I think it, it will have that trickle-up effect. And I, I think there is a uh, now there is uh, real pressure to uh, have uh, the, the framework uh, have uh, realization for uh, to be implemented on the federal level, and I, I think absolutely this is the next step, and we will get there, and because it it uh, I think uh, it will not only benefit Indigenous communities but benefit uh, currently you know British Columbians and the government and uh, sets forward. Uh, some certainty and predictability, and I think there's a lot of benefit that uh, the uh, the federal crown, uh, which would have benefits as well, and so I, I think there will be uh, a, a lot of uh, pressure being put on to uh, the prime minister now, and uh, now that elections are over, and so I, I think you know it's time that uh, the the leadership that has been shown by Premier Horgan by uh, the Green Party, uh, you know, that leadership needs to be shown by uh, the Prime Minister himself as well. Well, Chief Tom, thank you so much for coming on my show today. I really appreciate you taking the time, and, and I really hope that yesterday's news can, you know, be viewed as that win for Indigenous people here across BC, and then uh, hopefully, like we had mentioned, you know, seeing that uh, just sort of start the path to that, that legislation being moved across the country as well. So, so thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Awesome. That was Chief Don Tom of the Sartlip First Nation and Vice President of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. Coming up after the break, I thought the Green Party had a pretty successful federal election. We will see if the BC Green Party sees that as well as I speak with them after this. The voice of your community. Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Good morning and welcome back into the Jeff Andreas Show here on Friday, October 25th. The Green Party had what I believe is a pretty successful federal election earlier this week. It held on to its two seats here in B.C. while also winning a third seat, the first one outside B.C., as uh, Jenica Atwin won in Fredericton, New Brunswick. The party received almost 6.5% of the popular vote on Monday, getting a total of 1,162,361 votes. Here to talk about that surge is Green Party spokesperson Stephen Johnson. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me here today. 
My pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. So let me just start by asking about Monday night. I mean, when it came to what you saw from the Green Party, you know, winning three seats, seeing that increase in the number of people, you know, even considering the Green Party as something worth voting for, I guess just what does that mean for those within the party today? I know you're, you're here with the provincial branch of the Green Party, but just looking at that federal level as well, I mean, just sort of what does that mean for Green Party members as a whole? Yeah, so it, it, it's really significant, and you set this up very nicely. I mean, the, the popular vote doubled. Um, we retained two seats the first time ever that in a general election we elected more than one person. Um, so it's quite significant as an organization to accomplish these things. Um, one of the other significant aspects, in my opinion, is that traditionally there are a lot of people who say they they want to vote green, and as we get closer to election day, they start to question it. They wonder if it's really uh, a legitimate option, something they're worried about vote splitting, that kind of thing. And this is the first election that I've seen that I've been involved where a lot of people actually kept uh, right through to the end and actually voted green rather than switching um, their vote intention at the end. And I think what that indicates is a new level of sophistication and complexity within the campaign itself. So the organization has matured through this uh, campaign and um, it's going to carry that with with it through to whenever the next election is. What do you think it is specifically when it comes to the voter, I guess, that's sort of changed in the last while to really consider the Green Party as a viable option? Like you had mentioned, a lot of people say they want to vote Green, but then once the election actually rolls around, they say, well, you know, I'm actually going to throw my support somewhere else. What do you think has changed over the last, you know, we'll say four years from one federal election to another, where people are like, you know what, I am going to park my vote with the Greens, and and they, they maintain that decision right up until they hit the ballot box? I think there's probably three factors. Uh, The first is just climate change being far more on the consciousness of of kind of everyday Canadians. Um, People are starting to actually see the tangible effects of climate change, and they're also more conscious of the fact that we had an opportunity over the last 20, 30 years to prevent this. And, um, but we still have an opportunity to prevent the worst of it. The second thing are the changing demographics of voters. So more younger people are eligible to vote now, 18 to 38, that demographic. There's more of those eligible to vote than there are of other demographics. And, of course, younger people tend to be, um, uh, climate change tends to be more top of mind for younger voters. The third thing I would say, though, is uh, the work, particularly in B.C. and in Atlantic Canada, that the provincial Green parties have done has exposed a lot more people to what Green MLAs or elected Green officials can actually accomplish and do, even in smaller numbers, although even in Prince Edward Island, the Green Party is the official opposition now. So really... Uh, um, getting a lot more exposure, a lot more um, awareness in in terms of uh, the coverage we're getting, and um, actual legislative uh, accomplishments uh, that people are seeing and attributing to the Greens. Uh, here with BC Green Party spokesperson Stephen Johnson. So uh, looking here specifically at what's going on in BC and with the BC Green Party, just sort of to, to, to transition here from what's going on federally to what's going on here provincially. So you talked a little bit about the change in the way that the voter thinks and, uh, you know, does really uh, consider parking their vote with the Green Party more and more um, as times sort of move on with the, the more realization of climate change and, and other things that the Green Party does stand for, just being more uh, top of mind in the voter. But well, also when it comes to the candidates, are you just seeing maybe more people 
you know, more, um, you know, qualified people coming forward wanting to run for the Green Party. And, you know, when you look at what happened here with the federal election, do you think that that's going to encourage more people to consider the Green Party for their political aspirations? Um, you know, we got a, a, a election coming up in B.C. here in the not too distant future, a little bit quicker, hopefully, than the federal election. Just, uh, you know, what does this do for the party in terms of that momentum and being able to attract the right people to, to take up these positions and hopefully, uh, you know, be elected to, to members of parliament or, or to the legislative assembly? Mm. Well, I think you actually touched on one of the biggest dynamics is momentum. Every election kind of builds on on the previous one. And so, um, and you've seen that, I think, over the last 10 years with the development of the Green Party, how each election we seem to make further inroads. Um, there are definitely um, more people who are interested in representing the parties, uh, the Green parties during elections. Um, I, I know that for a fact from successive provincial elections. Um, there are also aspects where we've broken into um, having a voice and, and a unique perspective on other issues than just the environment. And so there are people from those uh, industries, say the new economy, um, high tech, who are also really interested in representing these perspectives in a political arena. So more, uh, uh, a greater diversity of people and backgrounds who are interested. Um, and uh, then, yeah, I think the other thing is that as we develop more of a record and more experience in politics, you have people who can work up through the the uh, levels of government. So you have more municipal green uh, politicians now, particularly in Vancouver. They may want to move on to provincial and then move on to federal. And though they represent uh, highly qualified candidates um, who, who have a strong chance of being elected. Uh, I'll get you out of here on this one, Stefan. So, so one of the main reasons I wanted to have this conversation was Andrew Weaver did announce earlier this month that he will be stepping down as leader of the BC Green Party. And so when you look at you know the momentum, as we've been talking about, that the Green Party has gained over the last while, uh, just what do you think that this can do moving forward to make sure that you are attracting really qualified and really strong candidates for that leadership position, which is obviously a significant one in a party where you know the, the Green Party does um, you know have a real chance to to pick up even more momentum than maybe it does at the federal level. But here at the provincial level, we've seen it kind of move forward and it has a chance to continue to do that. And, uh, you know, with a new party leader, uh, we think that it would have a pretty significant role in, in how people are continuing to view the party. So just what does the, the federal results do in order to help you really make sure you have a strong person backing the party, uh, leading the party moving forward? Mm, well, one of the things in particular we had uh, federally a lot of candidates who did extremely well but weren't uh, successful to um, uh, get elected. So a lot of them may actually be interested or some of them may be interested in leadership. Um, we also uh, have had with the campaign a highlight on the Greens, a spotlight on the Greens, and we can use that uh, momentum, that awareness to do more outreach and um, recruit uh, or look at inviting people from from across the province to consider leadership. Um, and uh, we will we'll take that momentum forward. I think that um, the the Greens have become more of an option and more of a, a legitimate option for 
a, a, a route to changing things in BC. And so the leadership of the party is an incredible opportunity for someone who has a vision and wants to bring that to, to provincial politics. Well, Stefan, that pretty much wraps up our time here. But thanks so much for coming on with me. I really appreciate it and uh, some good stuff there. So thanks so much. Thanks, Jeff. Take oh, care. You as well. That was BC Green Party spokesperson Stefan Johnson. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests one more time for joining me. And a big thank you to all of you for listening. Of course, it is that big Halloween weekend here, so don't forget to check out things like the uh, Haunt for Humanity or Boo at the Zoo or Tomorrow Afternoon's Zombie Walk here downtown Kamloops or the Field of Screams or a number of other spectacular events that are going on here this weekend wherever you may reside. So have yourself a fantastic weekend. And most of all, stay safe. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, I'll just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here on Monday at 9.